Well, we are midway through John chapter 15, and we come this week to a a section of Jesus's teaching in which he is preparing his disciples for the rejection they would face for following him. And this is part of his overall teaching on what it would mean to be his disciple once he had been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, where to this moment even he is interceding for his people. Well, again, we are in chapter 15. We're picking it up with verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you only because of Jesus, only because of what he has done for us in bringing us to you. So Lord, we thank you for this gift of grace and for this gift of mercy and how you continue to be faithful to all your people. We pray now that you'd be faithful to us, that this word would be a good one, that Lord, this would be helpful. And if not convicting, Lord, that it would move us to want to love you more, to want to pursue you more, to want to be shaped more and more to your word because it's good and because your steadfast love endures forever. And we believe that. We pray all of that in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. So Jesus begins this section of John 15 with some pretty stark words. He says that if the world hates you, know that it hated him before it hated his disciples and that If his disciples were of the world, the world would actually love them. So let's begin by just defining what Jesus means by the word world, just in the book of John. Well, in chapter one, John writes that that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And so in the most general of, of senses, John is using the word world to mean all of creation, as in with Verse 3, where he writes, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So when we get to John 3, 16, that that famous verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you should understand world at a bare minimum as meaning his creation. But as you well know, John more often uses world to mean humanity. It's why John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you've ever read through the Old Testament and paid attention to it, this should be nothing new to you. So you could think of that very same John 3.16 statement in terms of the book of Jonah. 
So for example, God so loved Nineveh that he sent his prophet Jonah to proclaim his grace and favor that whosoever in that wicked, brutal, and evil city turned to God would find God's kindness and forgiveness and life with him forever. It's the same message that has been preached from the beginning. Except Jesus, you see, is the final point of it. He's the hallmark of it. Jesus is a new and better Jonah who demonstrated God's love for the world, not just Nineveh, but and by giving his, his life for it. So, for example, the reason why Jesus teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them is because this is precisely how God treats the world. This is how God treats the world. God's character is such that he patiently endures with those who hate him and longs for them to turn to him and find life, even cities like Nineveh. Even when you consider scenes like the Tower of Babel or Moses' encounter with Pharaoh in Egypt, God is unbelievably patient and long-suffering with those who hate him. Even with Sodom and Gomorrah, God had endured with that wicked city and the surrounding Canaanite culture for generations upon generations and was willing to listen to Abraham's appeals for mercy in sparing that whole city if even just a few righteous people were found in it. As Ezekiel teaches, God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but he will allow humanity to reject him, even hate him to their own death and destruction. So, you know, before we ever talk about the world hating Jesus and his disciples, we have to recognize that God loves the world. God loves the world. You know, many Christians see it otherwise. We think God looks at the sea of humanity awash in in, in sin and hates it. Now, to be sure, he hates sin and, and what has, it has done to his good creation, but he longs to redeem and to restore. That, that's why the, the Christian's posture towards the world must never be sneering condescension. We, we must not take on the posture of, of Jonah towards Nineveh. We must take on the posture of Jesus towards the world as Nineveh. This is what we see in Jesus's ministry, of course, and it's why he highlights in the back half of our passage that he, in fact, has already demonstrated God's love for the world with everything he did and said. And still, the world rejected God's love for them. So just as God sent Jonah to Nineveh, so God sent his son to Israel and the world, and, and there's no excuse There is no excuse for the world not turning to him. By his love, he has exposed humanity's sin and provided life for for those who want it. So when in chapter 15, John says, if the world hates you, he has in mind sinful humanity living really in enslavement and they're in rebellion against God and, and in turn, in that enslavement and rebellion, they, they reject God's love for them. Much like someone, again, going to a physician, rejecting the diagnosis for them. But notice why Jesus says the world will hate his disciples. It's simply because they belong to him. 
If the world rejects God's love and kindness, don't be surprised when it rejects those who belong to Jesus too. Now, if we take Jesus' statement as part of the whole of John 13 through 17, because it's all one piece of teaching, what he has in mind here is not merely an intellectual belief that's in view. It's that his disciples confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they walk in his ways. So the world doesn't care. The world doesn't care if a person thinks Jesus is the Son of God just so long as that conviction never leaves the house or it never enters into gathered worship with other believers. It never affects a person's job or his neighbors or how he treats his wife and children or anything else. I mean, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can believe whatever you want to believe just so long as it remains private in the confines of your mind and has no bearing on anything whatsoever. Now, of course, if you know anything about Christianity, that is impossible. That is impossible. Now, on the one hand, we would expect, with Jesus' teaching here, uh, the Christian leaders, like, say, Peter, that they would face opposition just as he is talking about. And as a pastor, really as This is still weird for me to think about this, but I I think it's true as a public figure in this town, whether I like it or not, I face this too. I face opposition too. That's just the nature of leadership, and that's how it works regardless of what kind of organization it is. But on the other hand, Jesus has in mind not, not just Christian leaders, but all his disciples. So, for example, it's, it's very well documented that in the first three centuries of Christianity, Christians faced a wide range of backlash. And some of that was economic, like the loss of jobs or what they would or would not do in devotion to local gods, which would cost them business relationships, financial, all that stuff. It included the loss of family and friends when, they, when again, they refused to worship other gods or act like that. And sometimes... The backlash was violent because of that. I mean, Paul, after all, was beaten on multiple occasions, and he was literally stoned simply for preaching Christ. You know, some Christians were crucified, and some were executed in the Colosseum through various heinous means as entertainment for the crowds. Well, as Jesus says in verse 20, listen, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So it is a given, as Jesus sees it, that if his people are conforming to him, if they are confessing him and living as he has called them to live, they will be persecuted for it. And of course, this raises the question whether we, in South Alabama, are under persecution now. Well, Peter, in his first letter, like Jesus, he too assumes Christians will be persecuted for following Christ. And of course, he knows this firsthand in his own life. Even so, he spends the better part of the first two chapters of that letter encouraging his people to remain faithful to Christ despite how hard it is. And after reminding them that they were chosen by God to be a royal priesthood set apart to be lights to the world, he writes these words. He says, Beloved, that's so important. Beloved by Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's think through that. Why would Gentiles consider Christians to be evil even as they are forced to recognize their good character and their good works? Well, it's because Christians have both rejected the ways of the world in favor of Christ, even as they are at the very same time engaged in loving their neighbors. So when you love the world, for example, in place of God and walk in its ways, hatred of God and neighbor go together. Nineveh is, again, a perfect example of this. If you don't anything about that brutal, evil Assyrian empire, then you get it. When you worship a false god, by default, you tend to instrumentalize other humans for your betterment. But when you love the true God, by default, you will love your neighbor too. Now, what is so often missed in America, and maybe especially among Christians right now, is that you can show kindness to people without affirming what they believe or their lifestyles. So I can treat LGBTQ people with dignity and honor without giving an inch of my Christian convictions. I can respectfully disagree with them without resorting to a culture war. I can also do this with a white supremacist or a Black Lives Matter activist or a woke humanities professor or a Trumpist Christian nationalist spouting out conspiracy theories. Loving our neighbors well includes the refusal to compromise on the truth. And this is why Christians were hated in Peter's day. They refused to worship the local gods even as we seek to treat our neighbors, who may see us, by the way, as bigoted and hate mongers, we can treat those people with gentleness and respect. That our enemies play a different game, that they play by a different set of rules, it does not matter. It does not matter. Christians are not called to fight fire with fire. There is never a time in which taking on the ways of the world in order to win is justified. So, you know, I don't expect non-Christians to live and act as Christians, ever. But it is reasonable to expect this of those who claim to belong to Christ. So when our, our enemies put forth their Goliaths, they always do, like the teenager David, we, we don't go looking for a similar giant to fight back. No, we, we go looking for the God of all creation and we appeal to him. And the thing is, our God may let us die at the hands of Goliath. And at the very least, he may allow us to be shamed and humiliated and we lose. That's what persecution is. If you don't think that's what Jesus has in mind, just keep reading in the book of John and see how Jesus fared against the Goliaths facing him. See, no one is above their master. If Jesus endured hatred and persecution at the hands of the world that he both loved and made, showing them tremendous kindness, well, why not us? But again, the question is, are we enduring persecution? Well, in chapter two, Peter talks about the call 
to submit to governing authorities. And, and keep in mind, these were, were Roman and Jewish authorities, mainly, he was referring to, who at times were, were pretty brutal towards Christians. He writes these words. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, that is, by walking in Jesus' ways, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Just reading those words ought to make you think about a lot of American Christians. Uh-oh. Maybe we haven't been reading First Peter, but let's keep going. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So respect those who are easy to show respect to, and to those who are not. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now listen to this. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So a good bit of what some Christians have thought to be persecution is not persecution at all. As Peter puts it, it's taking a beating for your sin. In other words, it's, it's well-deserved discipline. We have used our Christian freedom as a cover-up for evil, as Peter puts it. And, and now that it's come to light and is being prosecuted, we, we claim we're being persecuted. And this is certainly true of all the sexual assault scandals that have come to light over the last 25 years in so many churches across the board and the attempts to cover them up or silence the victims. And this is a massive stain on Christian witness in this country. It's true of narcissist pastors who've been manipulative bullies like Mark Driscoll, infamously of Mars Hills Church in Seattle. And he's not alone, by the way. He's just really visible. I've heard lots of stories from other pastors in this denomination about narcissist bullies in the pulpit. And in my experience, it's actually fairly common. But outside of you know, debased Christian leadership, shameful behavior is the norm among Christians who aren't in leadership too. So for example, a pastor I know recently said the following in terms of how some of his people act on social media. And this is telling that he has both people on the right and on the left in his congregation. He writes, President Biden isn't seeing your comments about how he has dementia or a speech impediment. But let me tell you, your friends with grandparents who have dementia, they do. And the same goes for your friends whose kids require speech therapy. Trump isn't seeing your comments about how you want him to die of COVID, but your friends and coworkers that have COVID or have lost family members because of COVID, they're seeing it. Chrissy Teigen isn't seeing your comments on how she deserved to lose her baby and the jokes that are being made of her tragedy, but your neighbors, friends and acquaintances, family members that have lost children, and silently suffered are seeing it. You know, what is mind-blowing to me, and I stand condemned 
on this. What is mind-blowing to me is what Christians without thinking, and I've been there, or maybe they are thinking, which is what condemns me, what they post on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or even just on a text chain. And it could be some angry political rant or some frustrated, hate-filled, passive-aggressive tirade against someone in the community, and you know who you are. Or the half-naked dances that so many young girls post on TikTok now, never thinking how many people will see their video and share it, let alone the morality of what they are doing. And we rarely, we rarely stop to consider whether what we are posting is good or justified or godly. You know, so much of what we see online from Christians, I'm not talking about the world, from Christians is antithetical to the life Christ set us apart to live. And don't you know that what we post online is a reflection of our heart's deepest convictions? I mean, the number of times I've seen Christians, this is why I quit Facebook. The number of times I've seen Christians weaponize the Bible in order to attack their friends and enemies is just appalling. No wonder, you know, so many people outside the church find Jesus's people to be immoral and evil, and they call it out, and rightly so. You know, so what some Christians claim to be persecution is in reality just backlash for being immoral jerks. Now, to be sure, there is real persecution in the world, especially in places like China, Africa and India. And, and persecution from the state or elite universities in our own country is growing, at least in terms of the wholesale rejection of Christianity as a viable worldview and way of life. In fact, we just had this discussion this morning in, in the session meeting that in this town, sometimes Presbyterians have been, I would say, low-key persecuted by other Christians in this town for our beliefs or for what we are willing to do or not do. You know, Christians aren't alone in being censored, but we are targets, and there is a genuine Orwellian feel to how language and beliefs are being policed, or how things like masks and vaccinations have become markers of purity and impurity. You know, the time will most likely eventually come when Christians are, are forced to, to either submit to the governing sexual ethics and woke speech codes, or face real trials, you know, economic and, and political and, and everything else. And though I am not an alarmist, I'm just not. And I don't feel persecuted in any sense in this town. I do think it's probably closer than we realize, and I base that off of other experts. Even so, to my mind, the most relatable threats to our Christian existence come not from the outside hammers of persecution, not yet, but from the inward enticement to friendship with the world. As Anthony Bradley, riffing on Reinhold Niebuhr, recently said, American Protestantism of all variations, so think Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists, and Pentecostals, and Episcopalians, and non-denominations, everything else. These people have tragically, I should say we, have tragically underestimated the Christian lust for power via political influence and the worship of comfort, ease, success, and social status via materialism and consumption. You know, I purposely tried to show what 
what living the Christian life looks like in everyday life. So if, if last week I talked about what it is to take up your cross and follow Jesus in the fundamental everyday relationship of marriage, well, what does it look like to endure against the everyday enticement to friendship with the world? We'll take, for example, something I regularly talk about, Sabbath worship. It should go without saying that you know, one of the non-negotiable fundamental practices of faithful Christians is weekly attendance with the gathered body for worship. And yet, though it is one of the Ten Commandments, many Christians, well, they take this command lightly. I mean, think about it. The fourth commandment appears right alongside things like murder and theft and adultery. In fact, it is the only positive commandment as in do this as opposed to do not do this. So why, why do we take don't murder or don't steal seriously, but not keep the Sabbath? And I know I'm in danger at this point of, of preaching to the choir. Someone actually said that to me a couple of weeks ago. I know I'm in danger of preaching to the choir because some of you are absolutely committed to this commandment in just the way God intended it. And I'm so thankful for that. It really encourages me. And let me encourage you, if that's you, be in prayer for the church about this. No, I'm talking to those who might choose to be here, might not, might rather prefer to listen to the sermon when it's posted later. Maybe not. You know, attendance at worship in Sunday school most weeks is, if we're being honest, then why not be honest? It's hit or miss. And there's really no accounting for it. And it's especially... Again, among people 50 and under, and I know that's hard to hear, but it's true. You know, frankly, the last several weeks have been abysmal. You know, when other pastors ask me how big this church is, I tell them I honestly don't know because even on high holy days, we are never all here together. And of course, there's always an excuse. It's football season, it's deer season, it's spring break, it's Christmas, it's the summer, it's raining outside. We had family in town. I had a hard week. I'm tired. I just didn't feel up to it. Now, I'm not talking about people who have jobs that sometimes keep them out or when people are actually sick or people are taking care of loved ones or, or people who are actually out of town or on vacation. And as an aside, if you're out of town or on vacation, awesome. I hope you have a great time. I hope you really enjoy vacations. While you're there, Find a church wherever you are. Don't do the online option or wait for the sermon to be uploaded. You see, the sermon is a resource. I know I throw so much at you. It's a resource for you to go back and listen to if you want. It's not a replacement. Worship is so much more than the sermon. So much more than the sermon. The online option is for those who are genuinely sick or shut in or when you are in a place where there is no church. No, by, by skipping out on gathered worship, you're skipping out on the work of the Spirit among his people and in your life. You're, you're turning down treasure, essentially. Jim Duncan reminded me this week that during the height of the pandemic, when we were completely shut down, if you didn't know this, the session met every single week during that time, sometimes twice a week. Well, I expressed my fear to the elders that the pandemic would give people permission, really it would enable us to treat church as really just an option among many things. 
more so than we already did. And I fear that, that maybe that might be coming true. I hope not. But it feels that way. But, you know, I, I was thinking about this. It, it hasn't always been this way, even though over the course of my life. I mean, 30 years ago, four Sunday a month church attendance was normal for a majority of Christians. And the sociological data shows this. You know, in my experience growing up, and I know that's anecdotal, but in my experience, it was weird when people missed. We would say, where is so-and-so? And it makes me ask, was it easier to attend back then? Was that the good old days? And by the way, the good old days is always based on false memory. There's no such thing as the good old days. You know, when I consider every decade of my life, 1970s forward, every decade has had its travails. It was no harder to attend church during the 1970s oil embargo or during the fear of mutually assured nuclear destruction in the 1980s than it is now. I mean, after 9-11, remember that event? Sunday attendance was booming in Manhattan. People suffered with disease, anxiety, depression then too. People were just as sinful then as they are now. Sabbath worship has always been a commitment that Christians were asked to make by God, and it's a hard one. The difference perhaps now is that we are more materially prosperous than we were 30 and 40 years ago, and maybe that's just it. While Christians in other parts of the world are dying because they go to church, we are dying because we have found something we think is better to do. Now, why am I saying this? I know this is uncomfortable. Who wants to hear this? I'm not saying this because I'm asking for money. It's not because I need the affirmation of people listening to me. I don't want to preach this. It's not because I want to be able to tell other pastors what our actual numbers are. It's not because we are moralistic and think perfect attendance saves you. I mean, I've been your pastor for eight years, and you know none of this is true. You know me. I initially thought that what I was feeling was disappointment and discouragement. But that's not it. It's not it. I'm worried, if I'm being honest. I'm worried about our future. If you see my wife and I walking through our neighborhood, if you want to know what that conversation is, more often than not, it's about my worry about the future. You see, Sabbath is foundational to your walk with Christ. And without it, you simply won't grow. It's basic. It's like not murdering people is basic. And I'm really worried what not taking this basic, fundamental, God-commanded practice indicates about our hearts. Think of it in different terms. If this is getting too close to home, think of it in different terms. We intuitively understand the need for consistency and commitment when it comes to school, for example. In our circles, you know, it is unthinkable that we would treat our children's schooling haphazardly because we know their future financial success depends on it. We really, really want our children to have at least the same measure of financial security as we do, if not more. So if our kid is out late on a Tuesday night, do we think, Ah, uh, we're, we're going to let him sleep in and, and miss school today because oh, he had a long day yesterday. Do we say, baby, listen, I want you to get some rest. So don't worry about your homework or turning it in. It's fine. 
Sweetheart, I know you really don't feel like going today, so just stay home or go hang out with your friends instead of going to school this morning. No. In our circles, it is unthinkable. It is unthinkable to treat school or sports or cheer like we so often treat the gathered body of Christ. Parents refuse to miss their kids' sporting event. They will sacrifice time and money for it. I know. They will schedule their work week around it. They will travel hours and hours round trip for things, even as they require their kids to commit themselves fully to school and these activities. And we do it because we think our kids' future depends on it. So it really should cause us to question what our real non-negotiable fundamentals truly are because it may be they aren't the ones Christ has commanded us. If you see school or sports or cheer or any of this stuff as life, then you are in reality pursuing death. Are such things important? Yes, of course they are. I coach. I'm not that parent on the road. I I know, of course, they're important. I'm not condemning these things at all. I'm condemning what place they occupy in our hearts as non-negotiables. But of course, those who really need to be asking these questions might not be. And that's why I'm worried. That's why I, I really encourage you to be in prayer about this. And I'm worried, like with the, the parable of the sower, about what will happen. What will happen when real persecution comes, and I believe it's coming? Will they endure in Christ or will they wither and die? If the keeping of Sabbath, which Christians for two millennia have taken as basic, and some today are dying for it, if it's any indication, and I think it is, the future should terrify them. Now, again, I can't tell you, in a certain sense, I can't wait to get out of the pulpit. I can't tell you how much I dislike saying things like this, let alone ending sermons like this. Don't worry, it's almost over. But because I know God loves his people so deeply and has called us to this privilege of being set apart, of being in the world, but not of it, it's worth saying hard things even when I'd rather not because I'd be an awful pastor. I would be useless for you if I didn't. So if you find all of this distasteful or offensive, or perhaps you think I'm being a bully from the pulpit, okay, take out your anger on me, that's fine. Let me instead then end with the words of James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem and what he said to his people who I think were struggling in ways similar to us. He writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Hear this. God does not hate you. Let me say that again. God does not hate you. He is not against you. He has chosen you. He is your friend. He has made his home in you. And so don't take these words of James as evidence of his dislike for you. It's exactly the opposite. Take them as evidence of his unbelievable love and concern for you. A love that comes from the great physician who longs to heal you and make you whole. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I don't know what else to say except that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. That you love sinners. You love those who are running from you. You love the faithful. You love your people. There is no God like you. Thank you for such grace and mercy. Thank you for how you endure with us and you patiently endure because you love us so much. Lord, may we in turn turn back. May we seek your face in everything we do, not just on a Sunday morning, but in everything we do because we belong to you. You have set us apart. We are in the world, but not of it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.